Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Dr. Patience D. Bryant. Dr. Bryant is the Director for Student Conduct and Ethical Development at California State University at Long Beach, where she is overseeing the creation and implementation of the university's first restorative justice program, WAVE. WAVE stands for Welcoming Accountable Voices and Education. Dr. Bryant holds a doctoral degree in conflict analysis and resolution from Nova Southeastern University. She formerly served as the Associate Director for Campus Life and Student Development at Texas A&M University Commerce, and she also served as the first student conduct coordinator for the Department of Student Housing at the University of Mississippi, where she infused restorative justice into their current student conduct programs. Dr. Bryant was named a faculty fellow for the 2015 Donald D. Gehring Academy by ASCA, and she served as a faculty member for the restorative justice track for the 2016 Academy. And last year in the 2017 Academy, she served as the faculty track coordinator for conflict resolution with a focus on bias response. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Patience Bryant. Dr. Bryant is currently the Director for Student Conduct and Ethical Development at Cal State Long Beach. Welcome, Patience. Hello, thank you for having me. And Patience, we're really looking forward to talking to you today, specifically a lot about conflict resolution, because I know that you recently coordinated uh, the conflict resolution track at the Gehring Academy. But before we dig into all of that, can you tell us how you landed in student conduct? What's your journey into the profession? I always like to say that um, my journey into student conduct was not the traditional journey. I had no plans in working working in student affairs or student conduct. I'm originally from South Florida, and um, my undergraduate degree is in multimedia journalism with a minor in sociology, and my plan was to be a journalist. So I went on to get my master's degree in mass communication, and during that time, um, I realized how much I enjoy the course conflict and communication. So I was like, let me learn more about conflict. So I went on to Nova Southeastern University to get my PhD in conflict analysis and resolution, and while I was there... I took some courses with some students um, who were in the conflict um, resolution program with emphasis in in, um, student affairs. So we took a a few classes together, and I was like, what do you all do? So they were GAs. Some of them worked for housing. Some of them worked for student activities. And I learned more about their jobs. And um, I had to do three internships. So I decided to do two of my internships in student affairs. So I became a student mediator on campus And then I went to student housing and did their student conduct for them while I was um, working on my Ph.D. And while I was doing my work in student housing, the director, um, Erica Camp, she said, have you ever heard of ASCA? I was like, what is ASCA? And she is the reason why I signed up for ASCA and became a member and decided to go into student conduct full time. My first exposure to ASCA was through the Gehring Academy. Um, my employer, the University of Mississippi, um, I worked for the Department of Student Housing. As their first ever conduct coordinator, the director, Lionel Maiden, said, you need to go to Gehring and learn more about conduct. I went, I got hooked, and I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. I continued to grow at University of Mississippi. So I've gone to Gehring five years in a row, two years as a participant, one year as um, a, fel- a fellow for the restorative justice track, 
one year as the faculty member for the restorative justice track, and one year this year as the track coordinator for the conflict resolution and bias track. And throughout that time, I've worked at three different institutions, but I have been fortunate enough to bring conflict resolution to the student conduct process that they have at the institutions. I'm at my newest one now, and my love for conflict resolution and student conduct continues to grow. I think your uh, your story, patients, it echoes so many of ours in that I like to say nobody grew up saying, I want to be a student conduct officer. <laughs> it's, you know, I wanted to be a firefighter. I wanted to be an astronaut. But no one also throws student conduct officer in their five-year-old essay of what they want to be. Um, so I really appreciate kind of hearing the meandering from journalism through to, you know, a PhD through to student conduct. So what's your dissertation on? My dissertation um, was definitely different for people in my <laughs> in my particular program. I did a dissertation on um, the impact of colorism on historically black fraternities and sororities. So I tapped into my student affairs side that you know I had while working on my dissertation. And my chair was like, "What is this? Let's learn more about it." He supported me. Um, he learned about student affairs and Greek life, and and I was able to tie my both love of student affairs stuff and conflict resolution into one area. That's fantastic when you can kind of tie those up with a neat little bow. Um, When I think about conflict resolution and kind of where you've come, what you've researched and what you teach, I really think about a lot of our cases on campuses right now are related to divergent thought and speech that has a tendency to be harmful without violating our policies. And what I hear a lot from that is, well, let's refer it through conflict resolution. Let's, Let's send bias motivated cases that are, you know, not rising to the level of harassment, but are tenuous through conflict resolution. So in thinking about that, how would you best teach conduct officers how to use those tools to manage those types of cases? Um, one of my favorite things to say to students and to um, faculty and staff is we all have the freedom of speech, but we don't have the freedom of consequence. So often um, these incidents, like you said, they don't rise to a policy violation. However, there has been some type of impact in the community, whether it be directly or indirectly, Something has happened and the community has felt it and had a reaction. Conflict resolution is one of the best ways to address the impact that the community has felt due to someone's actions, whether it be verbally and non-verbally, that we can't handle on the student conduct side. So I recommend people all the time to bring the people who have been impacted into the conversation. Often through the traditional student conduct realm, we only focus on the person who has caused the harm or the person who has violated the policy. We never really talk to the person who has been impacted, who has been hurt, who have felt they have been impacted by the person's actions. Conflict resolution is the way to bring um, all parties together. Sometimes people think it's harder than it really is. Sometimes it's just a simple conversation. The formal way is to facilitate dialogue or mediation, but truly it is a conversation between the impact of the parties and the person who has caused the impact. It really gives the community a way to speak up for themselves and to say how we want this person here, but this is how this person needs to stay here and be a part of this community. Often people don't realize that restorative justice is one of those ways. Um, restorative justice sometimes gets a bad rap. People hear, oh, there's really no consequences. It's a slap on the wrist. But truly, if people truly understood that restorative justice means the person has to be held accountable and has to take ownership of what they've done, it's not easy to face someone that you've hurt. It's not easy to face your parents who may have been impacted by what you've done. It's not easy to face the custodial staff or your RA or your roommate. Um, it's easier to not deal with them. Conflict resolution sometimes brings, no, well, not sometimes, but always, it brings realness to the situation. I recommend that people who have a hard time getting buy-in from their um, 
superiors to someone on the campus to truly um, just send some links. There's so many resources out there that um, says this is how conflict resolution could be useful on your campus. Um, there's very little cost to bring in a, to have a conversation with someone. You definitely can bring in um, community members outside of the university to help you have these um, conversations with students, but also just be mindful of your community needs. Students want to have these conversations. Students have students are hurting. Students uh, want to be heard. And conflict resolution is a way to give them that space. I really appreciate you framing conflict resolution as a way to create space for being heard. I've worked in programs as a restorative justice facilitator, as a mediator myself, and as I, you know, reflect on the cases that I thought went well. It's when both the the offender and the person who was harmed really get a chance to voice their opinion and come to a consensus or a conclusion or kind of are able to voice um, what that pain really is. Um, and one of the themes that you know I never got to work with when I was working in an RJ program was this idea that we can use restorative justice to a to resolve sexual misconduct cases. And I think that's really a trend that we're trying to examine. So what do you think about that? What do you think about the use of restorative justice to manage sexual misconduct? Yes, I've read a lot of research on it. I have colleagues, we have colleagues who are doing it. I have never used it at any of the institutions that I've worked at. However, I do see its value. Um, I do see the value in a survivor saying, I've gone, I've gone through this process with this person. Um, this person has received this formal sanction from the university. However, I would like to have this conversation with them when they come back. I see the value of if we have suspended a student or separated a student from the university or university housing for a time period, that with them coming back to campus, us having what's called um, a reintegration circle. The survivor may or may not want to participate in that, but we're letting the person know you're welcome back on this campus. Um, we want to support you, but it's also how you have to act or um, be a member of the community to stay here. I think it's. I think people have mixed feelings about it. There's conversations about um, not re-victimizing the survivor. That's why I think it's important that the survivor be fully aware of what the process is if they are going to participate in it. Um, I think it's important that to know that to keep the window open, the door open for survivors. Survivor wants to do that later on um, in the process or at the end once the process has been completed. Um, because sometimes survivors need that. They need to have that face-to-face conversation with the person who has harmed them so that they can move on. So I think having that opportunity to do that based on what they want is something that I think universities could definitely benefit from. So in thinking about, you know, the ways that you use conflict resolution uh, on your campus, how do you best infuse those principles into your one-on-one meetings with students? The main thing uh, with conflict resolution, in particular restorative justice, the student has to take accountability. Often students won't. <laughs> Sometimes, depending on what it is, they, um, so the hearing officer has to make a decision for themselves whether they find that person responsible or not. But I still integrate what we call the restorative questions into my conversation. I really try to focus on that impact piece. And so I ask the student, who has been impacted by what you've done? Um, or who do you think may have been impacted by what has been done? Um, often students say, myself. And I said, well, let's, just, let's, let's unpack that. Let's dig deeper. Who else might be impacted by what you've done? Um, so even if they don't go through the full conflict resolution, whether it be a mediation or RJ process, Having those questions about, um, having a conversation about impact, who has been impacted, how can you make it better, it still can be done throughout a one-on-one conversation with a student. Um, I even integrated those questions into my hearing board script at my previous institution. So the hearing board was asking those students in the middle of a formal hearing these questions. 
and it's sometimes to um, allow the student to really dig deep about what they've done without them going through a formal or an official conflict resolution process. I think that's an excellent use of, of that space. And we hear a lot, uh, a lot of conduct officers speak to being able to infuse those principles, even if you can't run a full-blown program. Um, I think the, the challenge of the full-blown programs are really in, in personnel size and scope. And, you know, working with, um, with a full-blown restorative justice program requires a lot of buy-in from a lot of different folks around the university. So when you think about uh, the programs that you're aware of that have been run successfully, how can uh, an administrator who's maybe running a small shop or a single person shop really start creating that energy and momentum on their campus to create a mediation program or a restorative justice program or a conflict resolution center? In a perfect world, we will have all the staff that we need. We have unlimited resources and unlimited staff, but that's not the world we live in. Um, I actually, at my previous institution, it was two of us, two full-time staff members and a graduate student. My current institution right now is just me as I'm rebuilding a department. One thing I definitely utilize are my campus partners. When I um, brought Ryan Holmes in um, at my last institution to train RJ Circle facilitators, I tapped into those departments on on um, our campus who have the most interaction with students as a starter. People want to learn about these processes, whether they work in conduct or not. So I definitely recommend that individuals tap into their um, campus partners. Um, graduate assistants are great. The law school, when I was at University of Mississippi, we utilized the law school a lot for mediation. Um, because they want, they had to get a certain amount of hours, um, so that really helped us. And currently, at my current institution, faculty and staff have already expressed an interest in wanting to learn more about restorative justice and being a part of that process. So I'm definitely going to utilize my campus partners here as well. And what would you say to that conduct officer who is looking at um, kind of a mountain and just thinking, oh my gosh, I would love to have all these services. I have no idea where to even begin. I would say reach out to your colleagues. We are here. If you don't know who to contact, go through ASDA. Definitely, um, there are so many Facebook groups on about for student conduct administrators. Someone is doing something either close to you or similar to you. We're all in the same boat. It is you don't have to go. You don't have to start to end. Start small. See what you can do on your campus where you are now. Um, start with a small group of students. When I was at the University of Mississippi, I started with the housing students. Um, I had a control environment. They kind of had to come see me for the most part, so it kind of helped to start with a small group before I brought it to the main part of the university. At A&M Commerce, while I was there, um, I worked for attorneys to realize first before I expanded. So I, smart, I started small and grew out um, big. I also tapped into colleagues. There are some people who are doing some great work. Um, university of Michigan, Michigan State, Evergreen, um, they have similar programs, different student populations, so they definitely are helpful. Myself, I'm, I'll be a resource to anyone who needs um, assistance, but definitely utilize your peers and your colleagues who are doing this work. Um, we're all over the country, and we know that it is to have little resources. Student conduct isn't a department people really uh, give um, a lot of resources to in terms of financially because we're not a revenue source in most places. So we figure out how to do what we, what we can with what we have. So when you thought about creating the curriculum for members um, who are attending the conflict resolution track this year, what were some of those key priorities in your curriculum? What did you really want the attendees to come away with? Um, I knew that the attendees wanted to talk about restorative justice and mediation to facilitate dialogue. But I felt that if we were to talk about using those, using those processes for bias incidents, we had to talk about bias. We had to talk about identity. Um, we had to talk about how our dominant identities may play a role in our jobs. 
and how that may play a role in this resolving bias incidents on our campus. So it was important for me that um, that we talked about bias. We talked. We did exercise on our bias identity, um, conf- our own personal conflict styles. One of our my co faculty, Tony, she did a whole session on unconscious bias, not realizing how those things may impact how our students receive us, how faculty and staff may receive us, and how um, that shows up into our work. I tell anyone before you can talk about resolving other bias incidents, you got to tap into your own because we all have them. Um, okay, how do we deal with them? How do we work with them? How do we work with our colleagues? How do we educate them? Resolve these incidents. When you kind of were working towards how do you unpack those things with your attendees, um, what were the things that you were focusing on and the things that you were unpacking with folks as they tried to work through what can be some really hard stuff to confront on our own? One thing we really talked about was what happens when um, the student we're working with, we have different identities. Um, what does that mean? How do we make those students comfortable? There are times for many of us who are a one-person shop, so we can't say, well, I'll find another hearing officer or someone else to hear your, hear your case or to work with you on this incident who identifies with you. That's not always the case. So we talked about the difficultness of that and how do we move past that? Because like, I'm a one-person shop, so there are going to be people who come in who may look at me and say, hey, can you really relate to what's going on? And part of my job is to rest assured to them that I can't, well, even if I can't identify with what their particular issue is, to let them know I am empathetic and I'm here to listen and I am truly a neutral party when it comes to incidents. So we talked a lot about that. And that's a hard thing for some people to receive, that they may not have a student who wants to work with them because of their identity. And that's part of the, and that's in almost in every area. And how do you confront that? How do you address that when a student comes into your office and says, uh, you know, Dr. Bryant, I know that I'm, I'm here, but because of my identity and how I'm reading your identity, I just don't think you can understand and I don't think I can work with you. How do you respond to that student? I always start almost, I can read students sometimes, their body language, their face, sometimes they have the look of horror and terror, sometimes there's tears. I always, I always start a conversation with, what is, what is the worst thing that could happen today? And we go from there. And if a student was to express those things to me, which students have, we talk about, okay, what are your concerns? What do you think that I can't do for you? Or how do you feel that I may not be objective and truly listen to you? And we talk about the list of concerns that they may have. But we also talk about the fact that they can have an advisor. So they feel like they need someone to support them who may identify with them more than I can. We talk about, can you select an advisor or I help them select an advisor? That way they feel like they have someone who is supporting them, who identifies with them through the process. I think that's an excellent strategy, asking them to bring a support person who they feel they can trust. Um, You know, I think we've all run into students that we've had amazing connections with and we are still in contact with after they graduate. But we also have those students that come in the door and and we're just, you know, we're struggling on our own on how to connect with that person. And, you know, remembering that they're all they're all people first. Um, When you think about social justice in student conduct, uh, what comes to mind in terms of struggling with our own identities or the work that you see that student conduct officers should be doing on their own in order to do our jobs better? Um, I once had someone tell me that there was no space for social justice and student conduct. I completely disagree with that. <laughs> we have there, there has been awareness as student conduct officers, administrators, that our beliefs, our stories, our identities, they show up to work whether we know it or not. Um, Part of our job is to put our personal beliefs to the side and do our job and follow policies and procedures. But there are times when we know we may be impacted by a student's actions. And part of my job is to educate myself on my students. 
um, to educate myself on the demographics, their needs, and to be aware of what may be happening to them as it's happening on the campus, whether it be nationally, regionally, globally. Um, for instance, now moving out to California, I'm very aware of the fact that there's a population of students I never really worked with on a large scale, and that will be um, Asian American and Pacific Islander students. And I made that very aware to my vice president. I said, no, that's a group of population I've never really worked with, um, but I will want to learn more. And she made recommendations, and I've also partnered with a few people on our campus who can continue to educate, um, to, who've given me resources to educate, so I can educate myself on this particular population of students. Because I'm aware that uh, that is not a population, population I've worked with on a large scale. So part of our job is to educate ourselves. There's constant, constant things happening that we need to be aware of. Student conduct is constantly changing. The needs of our students are changing. So being aware of the fact that no student is the same, it's a lot of, it's a lot of gray in student conduct. Um, and that's part of the social justice piece is realizing that our students have real needs that are bigger than sometimes a policy violation, and we need to realize that sometimes they go hand in hand. Sometimes, depending on what the policy violation is, that may have to take a, a backseat to the need that the student is having at that moment. So I think it's, you know, an interesting place to be where you're walking into a new position and you're working with a student population that you're not particularly familiar with. One of the things I always struggle with is, you know, when we learn, we learn, so for example, the example you used was, you know, you haven't worked much with Asian American students and the needs of Asian American students. So thinking about that, I'm wondering how you navigate the needs of the individual while learning about the population without overgeneralizing the population. Yes. Um, I actually had a conversation with someone about that yesterday, saying um, when I expressed my concern about not working with Asian-American students, Pacific Island students, on a great scale, and she said to me, you have to remember you can't lump us all together. And as a woman of color, I feel the same, feel the same way. That's why it's important when we are in these conduct meetings to know, get to know our students, to not assume, to not um, stereotype, to be aware of microaggressions that we may be putting out on our students. And that goes back to us having that self-awareness, realizing that every student is different. Even if you have five students from the same place, they're all very different. It's easy, it's, it's easy for us to lump them all together, but we cannot do that. It takes more work. It takes more time. It means we may have to have a conversation that's longer than 30 minutes with a student in a student conduct meeting. But I feel like that's part of our job, to get that student's story. I'm with you on that. I like to start every conduct meeting learning a student's story before we even start talking about a policy violation. Uh, you know, a lot of times a student comes in freaked out or with a burning question or just really wanting to know what's, you know, I get the question, quote, what's going to happen to me, end quote, a whole lot. Um, and, you know, I really appreciate working with a student on a holistic level. And I think really that's what conflict resolution comes down to is giving all participants a voice. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there's elements of conflict resolution that can be good in lieu of a formal student conduct meeting. Uh, and so when I think Absolutely. about uh, the programs that you know we see out there, um, who are you seeing that's doing things really well? You mentioned Michigan earlier, but um, in Evergreen, I believe. But where are the, the sites, the websites, the college programs where our listeners could go to if they wanted to look at a really excellent conflict resolution program? Um. Uh, yeah, I've already mentioned Michigan, Michigan State, um, Evergreen, um, Skidmore. That is where David Karp is. He wrote a little book on restorative justice for college and universities. They have a really good program. University of Florida. I will also have to say University of Mississippi. Um, that program has definitely taken off since I've left. They call themselves Creed Circles because the University of Mississippi really focuses on the creed. So they do creed justice. 
So um, they really do good work there in terms of just having a lot of circle conversations and, and conflict resolution stuff between fraternity sororities with staff. I found myself at my previous institution doing a lot with faculty and staff and student staff, staff members. It's popping up everywhere, some small pockets, some large, some on a large scale. But I don't think people maybe realize they're even doing conflict resolution where they are <laughs> on their campuses when they have these intentional conversations um, with their students. For instance, at WashU, they do it. For, for instance, they have peer educators, so their students are doing most of the circle work, which I think is an awesome way to get students engaged and involved in the student conduct process. And where can I go to get good training? So if I'm interested in becoming a restorative justice facilitator or getting my mediation certification or becoming a conflict coach, um, where do I even start that process? Oh, goodness. I work with some great people. Um, of course, our ASA Gary Academy, we offer that every summer. Um, there's some sort of conflict resolution track every summer at the Garrick Academy. However, throughout the year, I mentioned David Karp. I know, for instance, he does at least two trainings a year um, up at Skidmore and at Skidmore College, as well as their small pockets. So you can get through NASA. Sometimes they'll do a long training, ACPA, or you can bring in someone. Um, sometimes if your resources are tapped but you want to train a lot of people, it'll be, it's cheaper to bring in a um, person to do the training for your team as opposed to trying to send the whole team to the person. Um, there are a number of people, like I said, ASC, I can give you a list of people, um, people who train me, Ryan Holmes, who's now at University of Miami, Andy um, Seabird, she's at Evergreen, trained me um, as well, and um, I've learned from some of the best. I think it's awesome that you're plugging all of uh, some of our faculty member, uh, faculty members rather from previous academies. So Andrea Siebert Olson, as you mentioned, is also going to be our Gehring Chair coming up for 2019 and 2020. So I'm sure she'll continue the really important work that you've been doing with conflict resolution. Uh, so patients, thinking about kind of the broader scope of things. Uh, when our senior leadership asks us questions about what is the value of conflict resolution in lieu of a formal student conduct process or in addition to, what do you tell them? I tell them that the value is, um, the number one thing about conflict resolution is community. So it makes the students feel like they are valued on our campus. It makes faculty and staff feel like their voice matters on our campus when they're included in our process. It lets the student know even if they are separated for a short period of time, we will always welcome them back. So the value is just making people feel like they belong on our institution's campuses and that we want them there. I think that's the secret to most student conduct processes is that our, our goal is actually retention in most cases. Um, I think that sometimes that get lo- gets lost on our colleagues that, you know, through our difficult conversations with students, we want our students to graduate. We want our students to come back um, if they're suspended. Um, and, you know, in very, very rare cases where separation from the institution is necessary, you know, that's really in the best interest of the institution and the student in most cases. So uh, I really appreciate and value conflict resolution in our processes. Uh, I think conflict resolution also hits on some of the core values in ASCA. You touched Mm -hmm. on community and diversity and inclusion, um, education. We also have advocacy, integrity, or sorry, uh, advocacy and leadership are the kind of the two that we haven't picked on yet. So thinking about the core values of of the profession, how do you see yourself infusing those into your day-to-day work? So all of them, honestly, all of them go into my daily work. Advocacy is definitely a big one. Um, often people feel like, you know, student conduct administrators, we're the bad people, you know, we put people out. And I tell students all the time, I said, I do not wake up every morning with a list of students and say, these are students I'm going to expel today. Part of my job is to educate through student conduct 
And when I'm educating through student conduct, I'm not only educating the student, but I'm also educating the community um, as well. So there are times when I have to advocate for a student and say, this is why I think the student should stay, or this is why I think a student should um, not be expelled or suspended. I have to do a lot of advocacy work on my end in terms of keeping students here, retaining them, or advocating that they can work with a different department or advocating that a student um, just needs a mentor. So sometimes uh, advocacy is a, a good chunk of my job. The part about leadership and integrity, those core values are, I think, it's integral, integral as a senior staff member, especially when I'm working with graduate students and new professionals. Um, I take pride in my job. Um, I take pride in the fact that I think I do it pretty well <laughs> and that I think that I treat everyone fairly. And I like to show um, new professionals and graduate students who are working with me that that side of me. Let them know that our job is tough sometimes. Sometimes we have to make tough decisions. Sometimes people are not going to be happy. But it's important that we're always fair and that students see that and our rest of the community sees that no matter what, we're always fair. No one's getting special treatment in a conic office that I'm in. So um, I think it's important that, um, that I lead in that way and be, that, be the example that I want future staff, future student affairs staff members to be. And with those future student affairs staff members, uh, we talked a little bit about training. You mentioned the Little Book of Restorative Justice. But what else might folks be reading that would be helpful? Okay, so I'm such a nerd. So I love the Reframing Campus Conflict book. I keep that in a regular rotation. I actually took it to Garing so that I can get people to sign it because our own ASCA members actually wrote the book. That's something I recommend to anyone who's thinking about going into conduct, wants to learn more about conduct, um, definitely Reframing Campus Conflict. But I also think it's important that people who are doing conduct work, and particularly conflict resolution work, know what is happening, know what's happening nationally, locally, regionally, globally, and how it's going to impact their students. So um, I'm a news junkie, but I also recommend that people read the Chronicle, Inside Higher Ed, and see what's happening on a regular basis. The laws are constantly changing, and we as student conduct officers have to be up to date with legislation and anything else that we need to be aware of. I also touch base with other people in other areas. So I would say send me an article from ASA or send me something from NOTA that that you think I may need to know um, about in terms of my work. I'm also currently reading Creating Inclusive Campus Environments by Sean Hopper. He's now at USC. Um, It's one of those national books. I'm waiting for my Asian American Pacific Islanders and higher education book to come through. So I'm going to start reading that next. But definitely keeping up to date with what's happening, not only in higher education, but other things, your state um, legislation is very important. And what about any other book recommendations that might not be related to the profession? Uh, I had a guest on earlier this year that uh, just had a child, and so he recommended the big book, City Book by Richard Scarry. So do you have anything um, along the uh, light reading or the humor vein for us? Yes, I love to read. So um, I actually just finished reading Hunger by Roxane Gay, which in a weird way, I was like, it was a memoir by her, but I kind of relate to like some things that our students are going through, so I still find a way to tie work into it. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm all about the story and the story that people bring with them, so I'm a big fan of NPR StoryCorps. I highly recommend that because um, everyone is basically telling stories for a very light, non-work-related podcast. I love to read, and I also love a newer podcast called Never Before with Janet Mock um, because it educates, me, it educates me on things that I'm not fully aware of because she brings a lot of guests on who represent different identities. And like I said, I'm constantly trying to learn myself. Now, I recommend to anyone the Little Book series. There's a lot of them. 
Tied to Restorative Justice, Quick Reads. Um, they have scripts in them. They have examples. It breaks down the history of restorative justice. Um, you can get them on the ASA website. You can get them on Amazon. Um, they're fairly cheap. Sometimes you can buy them in bulk. Excellent. I think you and I uh, share that we are podcast junkies. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I'm subscribed to about 106 podcasts as of today, and I'm going to add the three that you just mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> All right, patients, if folks want to reach you um, to get in contact with you, maybe to hire you for consulting work, et cetera, where can they reach you? Oh, well, easy. I'm on the Cal State Long Beach website, but um, outside of that, you can reach me at... Um, bryantpatients at gmail.com. That's probably the easiest way to reach me. And I tweet. I tweet a lot. Um, so it's P-D-B, so P as in Paul, D as in dog, B as in Bryant, underscore PhD on the Twitter. Excellent. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can always email us at ascapodcast at gmail.com. That's ascapodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at ascapodcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Bryant, for sharing your viewpoint today. Thank you for having me. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Alexis Martinez. Alexis will be speaking to us about working with student conduct and their intersections with professional programs like medical, dental, nursing, law, etc. We hope you'll come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com.